So let me begin by asking a couple of questions. Winter came, right? It felt like it wasn't going to come, and then the faucet got turned on, and it won't get turned off until March. So welcome to Grants Pass. So let me ask this. Who in here, knowing that was coming, who in here cleaned out your gutters before the rain? Okay. So who in here believes that the rain is God's way of cleaning your gutter? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who in here, when your car starts to squeak, immediately takes it to Les Schwab? Who in here turns up the radio? <laughs> if you can't hear it, it's not happening, right? Who in here, when your check engine light comes on, actually gets your engine checked? Who in here waits for the bulb to burn out? Which eventually will happen. It will. All right. All right, I, I say that because we're entering a new section of Genesis. And if you're new, let me go over this book that is the, it's the launch, really, of the human project by God. So here's what happens in chapters 1 through 11, God creates a really good place called Eden. And he puts in there Adam and Eve, who are his image bearers. And he says, rule for me on my behalf, this place. Do stuff with it. Work it. Till it. Use it. And don't do this over here. Well, the image bearers, Adam and Eve, do the one thing God told them not to do, Right? And then what you see from that point on is humanity just kind of goes downhill. Cain kills his brother Abel. Lamech, this, this guy that gets insulted, kills the man that insulted him and then says, if anybody gets revenge on me, I'll kill 77 more of you. Just mass violence. There's polygamy. There's the flood. There's Noah who gets drunk and in his tent and something happens, his son, some kind of sexual wickedness happens right there. We come to the Tower of Babel. It's bad. So in the first section of Genesis, the point of it is simple. Humans are broken. Humans are broken. So then chapter 12 begins with this guy named Abraham. And God calls Abraham and says this, in you... I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. In you, I'm going to do something that restores what's been broken. I'm going to fix it, Abraham, through you. So from chapter 12 through 36, the section we just did, what you see is there are these three main characters, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God will actually identify himself by his relationship with these three men. Right? He will say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we've just studied that. Now, are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob good guys or bad guys? Eh, yeah, I don't know, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? Abraham lies about his wife. She gets taken into Pharaoh's harem, Right? Isaac plays favoritism with his boys, gets them all messed up where they're fighting each other. Jacob, we've been through him. Jacob is just something else, right? Conniver, schemer, liar, okay? So 
What you see is, okay, humans are broken, chapters one through 11. I've grabbed this new family. And really, for their entire story, from chapter 12 through 36, what you find is this. The carriers of the promise are also part of the problem. Like you thought, oh, this is gonna be the family, they're heroes of the faith. No, actually, they're, they're just as screwed up as everybody else. So there's something deeply flawed with humans that transcends boundaries and people groups and stuff. It's just, they're messed up, right? So now we come to the final guy. His name is Joseph. And he's gonna carry the rest of this book. And I don't have time to do it tonight, today, but Joseph becomes the glimmer of hope. He's the first glimmer of hope. Like maybe there actually is a method and there might just come a ruler who can provide the kind of place where humans can flourish. That's really what Joseph does. Now that's broad, broad brush. But first, before we get to that hope, what we're gonna find is the check engine light is on. Like Joseph is screwed up, really screwed up. And God, unlike a lot of us, isn't gonna wait for the bulb to burn out. What he's gonna do is he's going to both orchestrate events and also use what was happening to help deal with the problems of these people, okay? So I'm gonna try to show you that in chapter 37 pretty quickly. And then we're gonna talk about something that I think applies to us, and then we'll go, okay? So let's look at Joseph. I want you just to act like you've never heard of this guy before. I'm gonna read for you 11 verses, and I want you to paint in your mind a portrait of this guy, okay? What do you think of him? So Genesis 37, verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. This is putting the period on Jacob's life. And now we enter into the next guy, Joseph. Being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, this is another, another name for Jacob, now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. When he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? 
Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Joseph, good guy or bad guy? Pretty screwed up, I'm going to say. Right? First of all, he's a tattletale. Right? He's out with his older 10 brothers. He's watching them take care of the sheep. And then he brings back an evil report. He tells on his older brothers. Like he's the little brother that always is telling on his older brothers. And the word evil report here, it's usually a lie. It's used in the Old Testament as a lie. So it may actually mean he's lying about his older brothers. He's an ark. He's a tattletale. Number two, he's spoiled. Israel, his dad, all their dads, all their dad, Israel makes him this coat. And most translations have a coat of many colors because it makes a really good musical. <laughs> Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat, right? Better translation is big sleeves. Joseph's out there in this coat with these big giant sleeves. Here's the reason why. If you were a worker back in this time, you would wear short sleeves, probably more like a vest because it freed your arms up to work. So there you have Joseph out with his brothers in this coat with these big giant sleeves. What was that saying? It's like going to a work site and seeing a bunch of guys in orange vests, hard hats, and car hearts, and there's one dude wearing an Armani coat. Who's he? He's the boss. So already, Joseph is being elevated to this position of, he's not going to work. He's not doing manual labor. You guys will do that. He's got the big sleeves on. He's got the Armani coat, right? And thirdly, he has this dream. And so in the morning, he comes down to breakfast. He sits down at the breakfast table. Everybody's eating away. And Joseph's like, man, I had the craziest dream last night. Let, let, could you guys help me figure out what it means? Last night I'm sitting there and, and I'm, I'm making this, this bundle of wheat and I make this beautiful bundle of wheat and it stands up and it's 6'2", 240 and it's gorgeous. And then you guys, you make your bundles of wheat and they're just kind of hideous looking and they all gather around my big 6'2", 240, standing upright, bundle of wheat, and they all bow down to it. What, what, what do you guys think that means? Any idea? They're like, shut up, take your coat and get out of here. And what does he do? No, 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 wait. I had another dream, right? Not just you guys bowed down to me. Mom and dad bowed down to me. I mean, that's insane. What do you call a person like that? A, a person that does not realize how hurtful their words are for somebody. They keep saying the same words again and again and again, not knowing how harmful they are. What do you call a person like that? A sociopath. That's what he, he is, a sociopath. He does not realize like, oh my goodness, the words I say are really hurting these people that are around me that I kind of like, right? It's crazy. It's insane. And he's going to be the one that will become the president of the most powerful nation on earth called Egypt. I know. Pray for me. Pray for me. So you got Joseph, he's got these issues. He's a tattletale. 
He's being spoiled. He says things to his brothers. You know, if you have a dream like that, just write it down, journal it, and then date it, get it notarized, do whatever you're gonna do. So later you can be like, I actually had a dream about this. But don't tell people that kind of a dream. It's so hurtful, right? So he's messed up. God knows this. God knows what Joseph's gonna need. There's a check engine light coming on with Joseph. So here's what happens. His 10 brothers end up throwing him into a pit, taking off his coat, and then they sell him into slavery into Egypt. And it's the pit and Egypt that straighten out Joseph and keep him from the favoritism of his dad and the hate of his brothers and his own tendencies keep him from growing crooked. So God uses jujitsu, I call it, because God didn't need the brothers to do what they did, but he used their bad intentions to get what he needed from Joseph, right? God takes care of Joseph. How about the 10 brothers? These guys are going south too. Look at the progression. Verse five, or verse four, they hated him. Verse five, they hated him even more. Verse number eight, they hated him even more. Verse 11, they're jealous of him, right? Then dad says to Joseph, hey, go check on my brothers. Go check on your brothers rather. Because I think dad knew he's a tattletale. He'll tell me what's going on. So he's sent out to go tattletale on his brothers again, goes out to find them. And when he comes, listen to what the brothers say. It's verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. The word dreamer there, it's the Hebrew and it's Baal, which means Lord or master, Baal Ha Harmon, which is Lord of the dreams. So they've nicknamed him. He's that dreamer. Baal Ha Harmon. What are they doing to him? We call this, when you start seeing somebody as their problem and only as their problem, we call it demonizing. So no longer is Joseph their little brother. No longer is Joseph a human being. No longer is he somebody that should have respect and honor as an Imago Dei. He is now the dreamer. The one that has those dreams about us bowing down to him, that sociopath, they've made him into something. When you do that to people, you're capable of untold evil. And it's a flaw in the human heart because we do it all the time to people. Someone that's lied to us, didn't just make a mistake and lie, they've now become a liar. That's what they are. Someone that's maybe rude to us, they weren't just maybe in a bad situation and rude, they now are a mean person. Someone that has, you just go down the list, right? On and on and on. We make somebody into their problem. And once you do that, like the brothers, you're capable of murder. You're capable of evil. So what does God do? Here's what God's gonna do. These brothers are gonna have to come before the one that they see as the dreamer, the problem, the issue, and they're gonna have to bow down. And it is this guy that they hate and want to murder who will become their savior. It's gonna humble them and break them. That's what we'll see. And cure them of this hatred that would have destroyed them. So God's gonna take care of the 10 brothers. The last person in our story is a guy named Jacob. He's the dad. And if you follow Jacob's story, 
Jacob has always been able to figure it out. He's always been able to, able to connive and manipulate and, and steal his brother's birthright and blessing, buy one, steal one, go to Laban, figure it out there, make a flock, wrestle with God all night. He's just a doer. He's gonna figure it out. But this time, he's brought to a situation that he has no solution for. Look down, verse 33. The brothers now have thrown Joseph into a pit. They've taken off his coat. They've cut it up. They've thrown blood on it. They've sent the coat back to their dad. And they're like, dad, whose coat is this? Verse 33. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol or the grave to my son mourning. Thus, his father wept for him. Finally, Jacob is brought to a point, circumstances, he can't solve. He can't do anything about him. He's brought to that point here. And he says this, I won't be comforted. You won't help me. For the rest of my life, I'm gonna be in mourning until I die. And I think that's actually how he lives, right? But then here's what God does to him. You can flip forward if you want. Chapter 45. 20 years go by. And then he receives this news. 45, verse 26. And they told J Jacob, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. Notice what's happened to Jacob because of the decision he made back in chapter 37. No, nope, not gonna feel, not gonna do this. I'm gonna mourn, I'm gonna weep my whole life. His heart has changed and become hard, where I can't feel anymore. If you want, you can Google this essay by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about that's what people can do with their hearts to protect it from pain. And you put it in a coffin and you nail it and you keep it close and you keep it secure, but then it turns numb and you can't feel anymore. I think that's exactly what happens to Jacob here. He becomes numb to life. But here's the good news. If you keep reading, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. God made his heart alive again. Here's what Jacob's learning. God is at work even when you can't see it. So for 20 years, you've been in the dark about your son, Joseph. For 20 years, you believed a certain thing about Joseph. But guess what? I've been at work. He is learning, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. So what we're gonna see as we look forward to the rest of this book is God sees the check engine lights, sees the problem, sees the full gutters, and God begins to do things and orchestrate or use events to help his people, right? So when I read that and I started thinking about that, so we entered into this final stretch of Genesis, I thought, what do we need to hear today about God? Are we 
like Joseph? Are we like the 10 brothers? Are we like Jacob? What do we need to hear about God? What do we need to hear? Because I think something can happen to us when we read the Bible and we see how God has worked. There's a tendency to then believe like, well, that's how God should work in my life. And there's some truth to that. But we have to be very careful that when we read a certain story about how God works, then we demand that that is how God is always going to work. Right? You got to be very careful of that. It's a danger. That's why I asked at the beginning of this year, let's read through the Bible together. Because what happens when you read through the whole Bible is you get what Paul calls the full counsel of God, and it balances you. So when I read this, I thought, you know what we need? We need balance today. Because there's this fantastic little thing about the place where Joseph is thrown into a pit. The city is called Dothan. Who's heard of Dothan before today? Who's heard of Jerusalem before today? Okay. So Dothan is this podunk, no town where nothing happens. It'd be like hearing about something happening in Hayuchi, right? I'm sure stuff happens in Hayuchi. We just don't ever hear about it. So Dothan appears here, just an obscure little city, and then it appears again a while later in the Bible. And both of the times Dothan appears, what's fascinating about it is this. The circumstances are really similar, but God's work is radically different. I'll show you. This is Dothan number one, Genesis 37. Joseph, surrounded by people that hate him and want to kill him, thrown into a pit. He's at the bottom of this pit. What do you think he did in the bottom of the pit? I bet he prayed. God, help me. God, save me. I bet he pleaded for his life. I bet he pleaded that God would do something. And what happens? Nothing. He's sold into slavery, down into Egypt. His life actually gets worse and worse and worse. He's put in a prison, falsely accused of rape. And it's like, it gets darker and darker and darker. God doesn't seem to show up. He prays and nothing happens. That's Dothan number one. But if you fast forward, as you read through the Bible, you all of a sudden come, against, come across Dothan number two. Very similar. Now it's Elisha. He is surrounded by this army that wants to kill him. And he prays. And guess what happens? Chariots of fire show up and they blind the entire army. Right? You're like, whoa. Huh? Dothan number one, pray, begging, nothing. Dothan number two, prayer, fiery chariots. Right? What's happening? Balance. Balance. And some in here need to learn Dothan number one. We need to learn that we can be in a pit and we can pray and pray and pray and pray. And sometimes God doesn't show up the way that we want to. Because there's a certain side of Christianity that says this, that if you have enough faith, you can make God do what you want. Have you heard of that before? That, that's a side of the body of Christ. That if you just had enough faith and if you just did it right, oh, God would show up and do whatever you want him to do. But Joseph in a pit cries out and he says, where is God? And God doesn't show up. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you were in a pit 
and you were praying and you were crying and you hadn't done anything wrong and still God doesn't show up? I felt that way. Do you know there are a group of poems in the Bible where people express this same feeling? I'll read them for you. Not all of them, because there's tons of them. But listen to this, Psalm 13. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? Anyone feel that way? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 13. Psalm 44. Verse 24. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Psalm 69, verse 17. Hide not your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. You know what's happening. Why aren't you doing something? Anyone ever feel that way? There's a term for it. It's called the hiddenness of God because it's so common, where you feel like the psalmists. Job says the same thing. God, where are you? Like Joseph in the pit. God, where are you? Right? So some of us need to learn this side of Dothan. We need to learn this side, that you don't always get what you ask for, that you don't always get to demand from God and he responds in the way that you want, right? In fact, the roots of that idea that you can just, you say and God obeys, it's actually paganism. Because if you could go back 6,000 years, back to the time of, you know, the ancient, ancient times, the way they believed about God or the gods, I should say, was this. The gods were superior to humans in all ways except for one. So this is ancient Near Eastern culture. They were superior in all ways except for one. They couldn't farm. So the gods created humans to farm and then to bring part of their farming and give it to them at the temple. And as long as you gave part of your food to the gods, they would do what you ask. So it was like, it was almost like a contract. If you give me 10 pounds of potatoes, I'll make this happen for you. That's paganism. It was, all right, you've learned how to rub the God genie right, and now he's going to give you your wish. And that is now tracked over into some Christian circles. You just learn this formula about how you do things, and God will always come and do what you ask. The problem with that is this. You then know better than God. You know the best path forward. God doesn't. And that's a problem because Ultimately, what we're supposed to say is Proverbs 3, 
5 and 6, which says, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Imagine for a second if fiery chariots had shown up for Joseph in the pit. What happens? He keeps growing crooked. He still gets spoiled. His father's favoritism is there. The brother's hatred is there. There's war and strife in that home. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. On top of that, he never goes to Egypt. He never translates the Pharaoh's dreams. The famine hits. Hundreds of thousands of people die. The 12 tribes of Israel die. And the promise of Genesis 12 perishes. See, we do Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 because we know we don't have all the information. We don't have all the information. So some of us need to learn this side. But then, just as importantly, other, others of us, we need to learn Elisha. We need to ask and pray for fiery chariots to show up. We need to be saying, God, I know you can. I trust you can. I believe you can. Send fiery chariots, because there is on one side of the church what I call the Eeyore mentality. It's fatalistic. This is the way it is. You know, God's sovereign. If God wants to do something, he can do something. And so I'm just going to wait for God to do something. It's very, very wrong. And so then we're not asking and we're not believing. And my unbelief actually does something to God. It's really strange, actually. So unbelief for us, when someone doesn't believe I can do something, guess what it does to me? It makes me want to go do it, right? So if I'm like, hey, dude, I could totally jump my motorcycle across this river. No way. Oh, yeah? Get the motorcycle, right? Call 911 because I'm going to wreck. So it, it, it's like I'm going to prove to you because there's an innate insecurity in humans in me. And so I'm like, you just challenged my insecurity. I'm going to prove it to you. God does not have that insecurity. God's not out to prove himself. When we don't believe God, here's how he responds. It's Matthew 13, 58. And Jesus says he could do no mighty work in that location because of their unbelief. It's Psalm 78, 12. Hebrews 3, 19, that says, they limited the Holy One of Israel because of their unbelief. God, when we don't believe him, he isn't like, oh yeah, well, I'll show you. God's like, all right, no problem. Try it on your own. So we got to take the, the Elisha side where we say, God, work, do, show up. And we got to be careful of certain kind of a theology of God's sovereignty, which is wonderful and brilliant and beautiful, but it can become fatalistic. And so there's a guy who was very sovereign God. His name is C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher. This is the way he balanced it. He went and visited this guy who was sick. And the guy was, who was sick was like, oh, I'm so glad you came, pastor. And C.H. Spurgeon's like, well, why? He goes, I'm trying to figure out if I should take the medicine my doctor told me to take. And Spurgeon's like, well, why are you wondering about that? He goes, well, I don't know if God has predestined me to live or God has predestined me to die. So Spurgeon said, I do. If you take the medicine, God has predestined you to live. If you don't take the medicine, God has predestined you to die. 
I like that. That God partners with us and our choices and our faith matter. Like Elisha, we pray and we ask for fiery chariots to fall. And there can be this thing that happens to us over life, 20 years, where our hearts grow numb and we stop praying that way. We stop believing the best for our kids and we give up on them because it's been 20 years and we don't understand that God is still at work even when we don't know it. And we're no longer believing or wanting or asking or seeking or knocking like Jesus told us to because our hearts have grown numb. And we, like that Greek that came to Jesus, need to say, I believe, help my unbelief. We're in that tension between the two. Help my unbelief. Help me to pray with faith. Help me to believe you are able. Help my unbelief. We need to pray that way. So it's balance. We need balance. And here's, to me, the biggest one. Do you know that Jesus had an unanswered prayer? At least one. It's Hebrews chapter five, verse seven. And that verse says this that when he was in the flesh, Jesus cried out with prayers and supplications and loud cries to the one who could save his soul. He's crying in agony to the father. When did Jesus pray that way? The garden of Gethsemane. Where the Bible says this, it's Matthew 26, verse 38. It says that Jesus went apart and he called his disciples to come pray with him. And he said this, please pray with me because my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. What was happening in Jesus's soul was crushing him and it felt like it was killing him. That's how great was the weight of that depression. Huge. And so he calls his disciple. Only time in the Bible, Jesus is recorded to have, have asked his disciples to pray for him. And what do his disciples do? They fall asleep, right? I feel sorry for them because they had just eaten the Passover meal. That'd be like eating the Thanksgiving meal and then going to a prayer meeting. You're gonna sleep, right? And it's there in the garden, Jesus with agony and tears and prayers says, God, please save me. The son asking the father, the one that could please send fiery chariots, save me from this pit. Dads, can you imagine that for a second? What would you do for your son, for your daughter? Anything, right? Anything. Gabrielle, my youngest daughter, it was probably six years ago. She got this baby doll and she wanted a crib for it. She kept asking me, asking me, asking me. Finally, she said this. She said, dad, would you please make my baby doll crib? I know you can you can work miracles. I was like, okay, get the chainsaw, let's go. All right, right? I mean, it's just like, yeah. That's the father hearing the son. And what does the father say? No, no. Because if I saved you from this pit, billions would be lost. My good creation would never be restored or renewed. No. And what did the son say? Not my will, but thy will be done. That's balance. That's what we're supposed to do. 
cry and pray like Jesus, like Elisha. And then trust the one that holds the universe in his hand. Cry and pray like Elisha and trust the one that holds the universe in his hand. That's what we're supposed to do. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. We are living in an interesting age. I'm excited about it, but it's full of just kind of these wow times. Last Sunday was one of those wow times. Like what is happening in our world? And they keep coming almost like uh, with maybe faster, maybe it's information technology so we can receive them quicker and we learn about stuff faster. I don't know, but it feels like there's, there's an unrest in my soul that I can't put my finger on. But I know this, there is one who does have his finger on it. And there's one when we pray like Elisha that can send fiery chariots for families and for marriages and for homes and for sons and for daughters and miracles. And, and, and I wanna start praying like Elisha for fiery chariots. I wanna pray for that. I wanna believe for that. I wanna ask for that. You have not because you ask not. Well, let's start asking. Let's believe. Let's not just sit in a pit and wallow. Let's pray for fiery chariots. So this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're gonna do a prayer time up at our office, 6.30 a.m. to 7.30. We're gonna get together and we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray for our marriages. We're gonna pray for our kids. We're gonna pray for our communities. We're gonna pray for this. Maybe most importantly, I said this to Wednesday night. It's been something that's been in my mind for years now. I think you can actually reduce the entire Bible to one word, rule, R-U-L-E. If we look at like, what does God want from me? He wants you to rule. Genesis chapter one, God creates on the last day an image bearer. And he says to them, this is your planet, rule it. Have dominion over it. As I do in the world or the universe with grace and compassion and mercy and creativity, you do down here. You be my image bearer rule on earth. But whatever you do, don't do it this way. And what do they do? They do it that way. They don't listen to God and they don't rule the way God asked them to. So by page four, there's this story about Cain and God comes to Cain and says, Cain, look out, buddy. Sin is crouching at your door, seeking to rule over you. That what was given to us innately in chapter one, in page one, now becomes a battle by page three. And that battle rages all the way into Revelation chapter 20. Who's gonna rule? Is sin gonna rule over you? Are you gonna rule over sin? How are you gonna rule? Is it by greed and violence and polygamy? Is that the way you're gonna rule? Because that's Genesis, right? Who's gonna rule? But then praise God, chapter 22 of Revelation, we're in the new heavens and in the new earth. And it says this, God's with us. There's no need for temple anymore. Why? Because God's in our midst the way the garden was supposed to be. God's in our midst. No need for sun or moon or lamp because he's right there. He is our light. And they, the lovers of Jesus, will rule 
forever and ever, that we're back where we're supposed to be. That's the Bible rule. The question is, how are we gonna do that in the middle? How do we rule well in the middle? Because that's a big chunk. I think there's a story almost in the middle of the Bible about a guy that does something. His name is Solomon. What was Solomon known for? Wisdom, right? He was known for wisdom and for having a thousand wives. Now just think about that for a second. (laughs) Wisdom and a thousand wives. Huh, that just doesn't compute, right? Here's why. The carrier of the promise is also part of the problem. (laughs) That's what it is. So when people say Christians are hypocrites, I say, yes, the carriers of the promise are also part of the problem. It's in all of us, just like Solomon. Super wise, thousand wise, all right? That's the entire Bible, okay? And there's this story about him. And he's in Shiloh at the tabernacle, worshiping Yahweh, and Yahweh comes to him and says, ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And what does he ask for? Three more wishes. No, pay very close attention to what he actually asks for. He asks for a listening ear so that I might rule well. That's literally what he asked for. I want a listening ear. Who's he gonna listen to? So that I might rule well. What does God do? Yeah! Read the text. God is so stoked. He's like, I can't believe you asked for that. Because you asked for that thing, I'm going to give you long life, and I'm going to give you money, I'm going to give you peace, I'm going to give you everything else you wanted because you asked for a listening ear to rule well. Whenever you see God stoked in the Bible, circle that. It's really, really important because God's saying, that's what I want you to do. I want you to be a kind of person that asks for my wisdom, that listens to me to rule in the sphere that I put you well. And we don't rule like the kings of old. We rule like the king of kings who came not to be served, but to serve, who came not to get something, but to give something. And so we are gonna pray that we be a group of people that rule well in Grant's Pass, rule well as husbands and rule well, well as wives and rule well as coworkers and teachers and whatever we are. God, help us to rule well in the sphere that you've given to us, to listen to your spirit so that we might rule well there. So your kingdom, so your kingdom might grow in Grant's Pass. That's what we're going to pray for. Because ultimately, that's what God wants for us. Now listen to me. Hear me. So you can be the kind of dad you're supposed to be. To be the kind of husband you're supposed to be. To be the kind of pastor you're supposed to be. To be the kind of neighbor you're supposed to be. To be the kind of citizens of of Grant's past that it needs. Now listen to me. And we're going to pray for that. God, give us listening ears. Repair the damage that we've done. Restore marriages and families. Give Grant's past this covering over of your protection, of your presence, because that's what we need so bad. So I'm inviting all of you to come and to pray, to pray like Elisha. God, send chariots, send chariots. And then to walk like Jesus, ultimately, not our will, but your will be done in Grant's Pass. So join us Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, 6.30, 7.30. 
and let's see, Elisha liked prayers and Joseph liked trust because that's the way I think we're supposed to be. So Jesus, forgive me for using theology to not pray. I confess, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm in that tension. I pray as we partake and the bread and the cup. I pray for any who feel like there are Josephs in a pit for 20 years. I pray that they might know that dark Fridays turn into Easter sunrises when we're in your kingdom. And I pray that they would trust the one who makes the sunrise. I pray for those of us who complicate prayer. (laughs) May we be a community of Christ followers who trust your goodness and your generosity, who obey the command to ask and to seek and to knock. And may we do that continually. And may we see fiery chariots. May we see your hand. May we see your power. And may we see your glory. For us, for our families, for our communities, for this church, for the body of Christ, for a reviving of numb hearts. Because you have been at work even when we didn't see it. So as we partake, would you do the heart work that we can't do? May we eat and drink of the kingdom. May we eat and drink of our king. And may each of us become more like you. And I ask this in your name. Amen.